guess we'll begin. Uh, written a bunch of stuff on the board. Uh, I sort of want to get into a time machine mode. And that is um, try to really go back to the early days of Buddhism when Siddhartha Gautam is still there and really try to feel and imagine what it was like to be there. And in doing that, we're going to trace the history of Buddhism uh, the first several centuries and trace a process which is very important in religious studies, and that is the routinization of charisma, which uh, Weber talked about. Very, very simply, it means that um, usually when religions start, in the case of Hinduism, they can't really find out when it started, so... But in the case of other religions, even in the case of, oh, sorry. even in the case of Judaism, which traces its founding back to certain great events, or Islam, which traces its founding back to certain events uh, in relation to Muhammad, or certainly the Buddha, or Jesus. So in all these in all these histories, what we have is a very powerful figure, whether it's a Jesus or a Buddha. Muhammad, someone else who's very, uh, to use social science term, charismatic. That means they just, they're very attractive. People are drawn to them, at least enough to start something going. And in the early days of their movements, whether it's, again, Jesus or Buddha or Muhammad, uh, basically it's, it's the personal power. It's the personal power and strength and wisdom that's perceived in the founder that holds the community together. That's the glue. That's the authority. It's, you know, Muhammad said this, or Buddha said that, or Jesus said this. And so that's the authority structure. And in the case of Jesus and Buddha, uh, people just kind of traveled around and camped out with them. And so it's the personal power, the personal charisma of this figure. That's the authority, and everything's built around that. Now, when these people pass away, or ascend, or wherever they go, at that point, uh, what does the community do? Because... In the beginning, if you had a question, you just asked Jesus, or you asked Buddha, or you asked Muhammad, but now they're not there. So whom do you ask? Who's the authority? Who's in charge? Who makes the decisions? And uh, so this, this is called the routinization of charisma, in which in order for religion or a spiritual movement to survive, that community, that, that the authority which was invested in a charismatic leader has to be transformed into a rational authority structure. If it's irrational, people get fed up and leave. So it has to be some kind of authority structure that makes sense to people, and you can have a government or some kind of, it, it has to function, whether it's democratic, or whether it's some kind of oligarchy, or whether you elect some new prophet, or whatever it is, something has to be done so that you have a regular authority structure. And that's called the routinization of charisma. So just to kind of feel what it was like, I mean, imagine if you had been alive back then, and for whatever reason you didn't like the caste system was kind of oppressive. You weren't a Brahmin or you weren't a, a king, so somehow you weren't winning within that system. And you weren't satisfied, you were tired of all the rituals, so you became a Buddhist, or you joined Go Siddhartha Gautam. And so basically what it meant was you just kind of wander around. You just sort of wander around and you try to convince people. You sort of go village to village, door to door, and go up to people and say, Hi, uh, I'd like to tell you something that may be really valuable for you. Now, at this point, they're peripatetic, they're wandering around, and there are certain 
There are certain characteristics of that kind of lifestyle. Even today, if you decide to drop out of school and get a backpack and put a compass in it and a water filter and some energy bars or whatever and sort of take off wandering around, I mean, what does it mean to have that kind of lifestyle? Karl Marx studied these things, by the way. One of the main points of Karl Marx, as I always say, he was a really good historian and sort of a really bad prophet. Anyway, Karl Marx, one of his main points was that the way people live, the way they, their means of production determines the kinds of relationships they have. So if you have, imagine hunters and gatherers, people that live by hunting, hunting and gathering. Now, the Buddhist monks, the bhikshus, the beggars, weren't hunting because one of their main principles was ahimsa. But still, they were wandering around. And you can't stay in this, when you're, when you're living like that, you can't stay in the same little village because you can't go to the same places every day and say, hi, you were nice enough to give me a free lunch yesterday. And I was just wondering if maybe you had a few extra beans today. I mean, after a while, in fact, they have a, they have a saying in India that after so many days, a guest starts to smell like a fish. In the sense that... Um, so because they're wandering around, they're not getting jobs, they're devoting themselves to teaching what they learned from the Buddha. So in that sense, they're gathering. They have to keep moving. Another thing about that kind of lifestyle, where you're traveling around and you, you, know, you ask people, excuse me, do you mind if I sleep in your mango grove tonight? Because basically they're camping out under the stars. They don't have, there are no buildings, there are no Buddhist monasteries. They just kind of wander around which means you can't stay too long in the same place because for one thing, after you've been someplace for a while, you kind of figured out who's interested, who's not, and you can't keep going to the same people. I told you 12 times I'm not interested. So it's just the nature of this kind of activity, preaching, begging, you just sort of keep moving. And when you keep moving like this, you can't have too many people traveling together because you can't have 500 people come to some farmer's door and say, hi, could my friends and I stay here tonight, if we have lunch here tonight, there's just 500 of us. So you can't have that many people. So what this kind of lifestyle means is not too many people going together and you keep moving. And that's just one of the realities of it. Now, what does it mean to keep moving and to be with just a few other people? For one thing it means you can't carry a lot of things. You can't accumulate possessions. So that in those days they didn't have printing presses, so you couldn't just go, you know, buy all the Buddhist books at the local, local Buddhist bookstore. They would write things, and because this is northern India, they would probably write on birch bark, which is sort of the white bark of certain kinds of trees. And how much birch bark can you take in your little bag? I mean, you can't really carry a library around, and birch bark libraries can be very heavy. It's not even paper, it's birch bark. So it's very, so you don't have a library, and it's the nature of that kind of lifestyle. I mean, if you were wandering around Florida, or you even headed to Georgia, and just start, say you decide to walk across America. You can't carry many things, and there's not that much extra time. You don't have a library with you, let's say there's no computers, and you're kind of like always in the move, and you have to stay someplace every day, you have to figure out where am I going to sleep, where am I going to eat, and so you don't develop a lot of sophisticated culture. You're just kind of on the move. So this is going on for a while. Uh, this is the early Sangha. Buddha himself is doing this. He's actually wandering around too. Jesus did this. Jesus wandered around. He just wandered around. He camped out with his, the people that followed him and they talked like this. But then what happens is that because they had a message which resonated, people started to respond. Buddha himself was very charismatic and apparently his followers were inspired. And so after a while you start to get a lot of people that are interested. 
And then the monks, let's say if you're a monk, you, they kind of travel around. They have their certain routes. And they, yeah, we have five people in this village and seven people in that village. You start wandering around and, and talking to the same people. And so this is something like what was going on when Buddhist, Buddha passed away. Because as long as he was on the move, everybody was on the move. Because, you know, you just do what Buddha's doing. But then Buddha passes away, and as I said, people kind of naturally come together. It's like if someone, let's say, if someone very dear in your family passes away, the family kind of gets together. Everybody wants to get together and talk about it and comfort each other and so on. So everybody gathers together because Buddha just passed away. Uh, oh, a few other things I want to say, what it was like. If you wanted to, the way you joined back then, the way you joined and became a Buddhist back then, when Buddha was there, is you would make a vow. You would say, Bhutang uh, Sharanam Gachami. Anyway, Bhutam uh, and then Sadanam, which is Pali for the Sanskrit, Shadanam. It means shelter, and then Gachami means I go. I go to Buddha for shelter, and then uh, Dharmam Sadanam Gachami. It's not just a personality cult, I go to Dharma for shelter. The, the, the principles, the teachings. And uh, it's interesting because. Very early on, they added a third one. These became the jewels. These were the Buddhist jewels. That you, I go to Buddha for shelter. I go to the Dharma for shelter. And they added a third one, which I go to the Sangha, the community. I go to the Sangha for shelter. If you look at the early history of Islam and also Christianity, you see that very early on, uh, the community, what do they call it in, in, in uh, Arabic, the Ulam? Uh? Ulam? Yeah. yeah. That's right. It became very important. In fact, the whole... Uh, Sunni form of Islam is based on the idea that authority lies in the community. The same thing very quickly if you know your New Testament, book of John, I think chapter 14, Jesus is, which is apparently according to scholars and according to what everyone thought in ancient times, written in West Turkey, a few generations after Jesus. But anyway, so in this book, it said that in chapter 14 that um, Jesus is quoted as saying that the Holy Spirit will come in my name and teach you things you didn't hear from me. Don't freak out. Because actually, it's really coming from me through the Holy Spirit. So, this was, of course, the church. Because the church was coming up with a lot of new doctrines. Just like we're going to see with Mahayana. Com comes up with a lot of very spectacular new doctrines. And, of course, in order to do that, because, again, the routinization of charisma, once a quote-unquote religion forms, it's not a bunch of people wandering around and camping out. It actually is becoming an institution, and it has an authority, and people, let's say, are confused by something. Well, Buddha said that we believe in karma, right? Right. Yeah, but if there's no self, like, who gets the karma, and who's carrying the karma? That becomes a big issue, by the way. I mean, it should have been, because it's a very good question. So now, because Buddha said that, well, this is really about states of consciousness. Like, don't get hung up in theology, don't get hung up in philosophy. Uh, it's really about states of consciousness. So therefore, there's a certain amount of free thinking, because it's almost like whatever works for you. It's like, if you understand a certain way, and that gets you into the state of consciousness, that's okay. But once you start forming institutions, it's like everybody can't have their own opinion. There has to be some uniformity. And so therefore, the community has certain authority. Otherwise, it just unravels, it becomes anarchistic, and you don't have a new religion. Therefore, the third jewel was, uh, well, it's not there, but I'm pointing to something which you can envision. That Sangam, Sharanangachami. I go to the Sangha. I go to the community, which has a structure for shelter. That's the third one, and that shows what's happening. First, it's just Buddha and Dharma. Now it's the community. 
they start to take on this authority. So, uh, any questions on that so far? Another interesting thing. Let's not forget the Jains, the poor Jains. Because the Jains actually, during this time, are just as big as the Buddhists. Buddhism now is a world religion with over 700 million people. There's a few million Jains. But back then, they're, you know, head to head, toe to toe. So, now here's another interesting thing. Let's say you're a Buddhist monk, you're a bhikshu, literally you're begging for your meals and shelter, and you get some little village and you go up to some house or some farmer, his wife, and you want to explain, and they say, well, you know, there was this Jane guy that was just here yesterday, and we fed him, and I don't think we can really do it again because it didn't rain that much this season. Or... Because this is what was happening. These people are in the same region. They're in the same part of India. And they're doing exactly the same thing. They're wandering around with a similar message. Because people in general, farmers, farmers' families, craftspeople, they're not highly intellectual philosophers. And, and so from their point of view, I noted down a few things that, um, well, you guys both believe in Ahimsa. That seems to be like central to you. Because that was a big deal. No Vedic sacrifices, don't kill all the animals, ahimsa. So you both agree on that, and you're both shramanas. You're both wandering around, you both don't have any possessions. And uh, you're, you're against sacrifice, you're against the caste system. So from the point of view of the average working guy or average lady back then, it's like, aren't you like really similar? I don't see the difference. And so what you've got to do, if you're, you're a Buddhist monk, is say, well, you know, actually there is, really is a difference. There's really a reason why, rather than become a Jain right now, you should seriously consider joining the Siddhartha Gota movement. And, I mean, they have these discussions. We know they have these discussions because there's literature that survives. And at a very early stage, they start making arguments against each other. They didn't have any wars, to their credit. No wars. It's a bloodless battle. But they are debating and so you can see what the Buddhists might have said. Well, you know, with all due respect to our Jain brothers, uh, they've got this idea of a jiva, which is there's a living thing. And, you know, the truth is, it's really about consciousness. We need to get into this proper state of consciousness. And any word like that, which eventually we'll talk about Monday, uh, we'll be talking all about Buddhist philosophy. I keep promising this and not delivering. So before you sue me... We will talk about it on Monday, all about everything you'd ever want to know about Buddhist philosophy. But the idea is that the Jains have this jiva, which is something like a soul, but no God. So the Buddhists naturally trying to make a distinction because they're competing. They're going to the same villages. They're approaching the same people. They're trying to sleep in the same mango groves and, you know, convert the same people. So... I mean, what is a jiva after all? It's just a word, and it's not about words, and it's about states of consciousness. And if you get hung up in these words, you start to think, I'm a jiva, it kind of keeps you locked and trapped in material consciousness. So you have to go beyond all that, get beyond all these concepts, and just kind of be here now, and uh, realize that you're suffering, that's because you're selfish, stop being selfish, you won't suffer, and if you want to... Stop being selfish. Here's the way to do it. We've got this little program, you know? You can do it at home. And you follow these eight principles, right thinking, right... And, and so, these discussions are really going on. It's really the Jains against the Buddhists. And they're very similar, and they're going to the same places and talking to the same people. And so you can see, because the Jains have this jiva thing, the Buddhists start to distinguish themselves. We haven't got that jiva thing. We haven't got these mysterious ideas. And so they start to drift into this anatman thing. 
what Buddha really said about the soul, is there a soul? And I'm going to talk all about that on Monday, really. And, uh, but you can see how there's little pressure. They've got to distinguish themselves. Or they can say, well, Buddha, I mean, I'm sure Mahavir is a really great guy, but you have to meet the Buddha. So anyway, so these, <laughs> these things are going on. They're really going on. And so then Buddha passes away, and they, they, everyone gathers together for one thing, you know, like they, to, to comfort each other in their grief, to figure out what happens next. So with that, um, with that first council, just give you an idea, there's a barber named Upali. He's a really important guy. He's probably one of the most important barbers in his religious history because Upali, why are barbers, why is he important? Upali the barber. Not the barber of Seville, but the barber of Magadha. So, because when you became a Buddhist monk back then, and they were mostly monks, the monks were like really a huge chunk of Buddhism back then, and there were some lay people, but the monks were really it. And to become a monk, you had to take this vow, and you had to shave your head. You had to, you had to buzz up. You're in the army now. You had to get your monk cut. So Upali shaved up all the new monks. And it was at the time of shaving up the new monks that they would make their prati moksha. I want to write that because, anyway, I don't want to keep you in suspense. I'll tell you why I wrote up pool cleaning. Because uh, what's going to happen here is that Buddhism is going to start out. It's going to start out by defining itself as worthy un-Hinduism. Or we are the, you know, we are totally different. We've rejected all that stuff. We're something completely new. What's going to happen for various reasons based on human psychology and sort of the economy of religion, a concept which has not died, it just hasn't been engaged enough. But we're going to talk about that also. And you're going to see how Buddhism, almost from the beginning, is going to start by, at times, imperceptible increments, at times, by leaps and bounds, coming back toward Hinduism. So that by the time, let's say, about 1,200 years after Buddha, all kinds of Buddhist temples start to be converted into Vishnu temples. Buddhism becomes, in, in many ways, almost indistinguishable from a kind of Hinduism, because Hinduism is very diverse. There's all kinds of Hinduism. It's a free, open thing. And so, so I give you the idea of pool cleaning because I think you could make an argument, not for East Asia, that's a sort of different thing, but at least for India, it's like if you have a pool and you want to clean the bottom of your pool, you have to empty out all the water, then you scrub it, and the water comes back in. So there's a sense in which the Buddha sort of clears out, he empties out his movement of everything which is Vedic, almost. And then they kind of scrub it. They, they put it on an ethical basis. They, 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 all kinds of reforms, social reforms, moral reforms, uh, conceptual reforms. But then, once they've done that, the water comes back in. And you have, in a sense, you have a transformed Hinduism. Not just, I don't say Buddhism is a transformed Hinduism, but Hinduism itself responds, it reacts, they, they become again a lean and mean religious machine, and in this new form of Hinduism, Buddhist, you know, Buddhists more and more think, well, that's actually pretty cool what they're doing over there. And I kind of like that, too. And why don't we do this? And why don't we do that? And they start to come together again. So, uh, and by the way, the vow they make, when you say that I go to Buddha for shelter, I go to Dharma for shelter, I go to the Sangha for shelter, that's the, uh, oh my God, hardly any room here. Anyway, it's called the Prati Moksha. It's also when they make confessions, they kind of make public declarations and things like that. 
Now, it shows you how the, the seeds of Hinduism are still there, because moksha is very much a Hindu word, a Vedic word. It means liberation, literally release, released from illusion. And prati means about or towards, going that way. So even their vow to become a Buddhist is using a type of Vedic language, but they're reinterpreting it. So, uh, any questions on that? Um, yes. So, prati motion is the three jewels? Well, or is the act of deciding uh, it? I was at three jewels, that, that's a kind of prati motion. Prati motion means you kind of confess in a public place uh, to other monks, or, or you make a declaration. And there are different kinds of prati moksha because over time it evolves, like what you say to become a Buddhist, or what you say to reach different levels, or what you say if you've done something wrong to rectify yourself. It's kind of like these declarations you make, or reciting things. So the first council, Pali's there, he shaved everybody up, so he knows how you become a Buddhist monk, because he attended every monk ceremony they ever had. So he's important. Ananda's important because he lived with the Buddha. He was his attendant, I think his cousin and, and personal attendant for 30 years. So he's very important. But to show you human nature, oh, by the way, just one, before when Buddha was still there, there were 60 principal monks, and there was only, he said, go out, set the monks out to wander and all that. But they would come together in the rainy season. They would travel all the time. But in the rainy season, four months, Chaturmasya, which means four months, and in four months in India, basically around the summer months, it rains so hard, if you're wandering around barefoot, you're not going to wander around barefoot. You're going to become neck deep in mud. So, everyone, all the different sages from all the different religions stop if they're wandering during that time. So they would be together. Now, when they met at the first council, Upali the barber knows all about ordination, and Ananda knows all about the Buddha, but what happens? When Buddha passes away, there's some monk named Subhadra who says, hey, I'm glad the Buddha's not here anymore because now we don't have to follow all these rules. We, we have more freedom now. We're kind of like under the thumb of the Buddha. Now, obviously, this isn't what, this isn't what most people thought, but it shows you how these were real people. And so there, people realize that we need to have objective rules. We can't just, we can't just be the Buddha's charisma. Because, and then there's a guy named Purana who has 500 disciples. So this guy has some charisma, he's got something going for him, or he's a good talker. I mean, something, and so Purana comes at the very end of the meeting, the very end of the meeting, and by this time they sort of worked out, okay, we all agree now, this is what Buddha taught. They agree on two things, the sutra, remember the three baskets, the sutra pitaka, the, what the Buddha taught, the teaching basket. So they agree on the teachings, okay, we're all on the same page, this is what Buddha taught. And the vinaya, what are the rules, like... You can't eat afternoon, or you know, don't handle money, or you gotta, you can only sleep so many hours a day, or whatever. All these monastic rules. So we all agree on that. We agree on the sutras. We agree on the vinayas. So then Purana wanders in the last, just as the meeting's ending, and is saying, "Come on, Purana. I mean, you really got to be a part of this. You got to be on the team. Uh, you know, you have to uh, support us." And Purana says, "No, not really, because Purana's thinking, I got my 500 disciples." It's like, I don't need all this. I know what the Buddha said. I don't need you guys. It's kind of like the U.S. Olympic basketball team up until recently. So, so Purana's kind of like a, a hotshot. And what's interesting is it shows all these human things that are going on. So there's Purana, there's 500 disciples. And he doesn't need anybody else. And Subhadra's kind of glad the Buddha's not there anymore. Tell everybody what to do. But most people are more normal. And they continue to follow the Buddha. 
But now what happens is, because the number of followers increases, they start to get money, they start to get land. Well, maybe not money directly, but some rich person goes up to a monk and says, I'm really inspired, I want to do something, I want to build you a place. You don't have to like wander and sleep out in the rain and everything. And so the monk may say, well, I'm not going to handle money personally, but if you want, find me a nice piece of land and build a building like this. And that starts happening. Plus, frankly, wandering around barefoot, sleeping out in the rain or under the stars and begging for food gets very old. I mean, after a while, it gets old. And to give an example of that, St. Francis of Assisi. That's what Francis did. He just kind of wandered around naked, and he was a real bhikshu. And as he wandered around, no residence, just, you know, doing his thing. By the time, how should I put it, Francis of Assisi was actually, in a very polite, gentle way, expelled from his own Franciscan order while he was still alive. He studied history. And the reason is, because he, th- and they say he died prematurely because of all the physical hardships he went up, underwent, because, you know, wandering around all the time is, is kind of rough. Because the Franciscans, they said, hey, look, someone wants to build us a building. And Francis said, no, we don't want a building. And the monk said, yeah, we do want a building. <laughs> and because, for example, stuff like Buddha may have said, don't speculate. You know, you don't need to speculate and don't think, just get into the right consciousness. But there were inevitably some people who were intellectuals. They said, hey, I want a library. I want a desk. I want to, I want to write books. I want to... And some people just didn't want to sleep outside every day in their lives. And then there was money. It's like, we don't have to wander around and beg because in this particular city, or on this particular trade route, there's some rich people, they're Buddhists now, and they just told us they're going to supply all our food. We don't have to beg. We could spend our time meditating. And so it gets old as you get old. I mean, you know, when you're a young guy, you just convert to Buddhism. Hey, this is fun. Let's go out and camp out with Siddhartha. But as you get older, you've been doing it for years. Oh, so, you know. Anyway, it reminds me of those sort of old middle-aged guys my age, you know, Hell's Angels are right around the motorcycle. But... Anyway, so what happens is that the Buddhist movement, they really, there's this big shift. It stops being a movement of wandering bhikshus, which means beggars, people, you know, big alms. And they start getting some really nice buildings and, and monasteries. And, they, and, they, and, they live, and so instead of them going to the people, people have to come to them. Now, what's the sociological impact of this? For one thing is, when you live somewhere in a building on a nice piece of land, Surrounded by rich patrons, you can accumulate a lot of stuff, right? I mean, you can have a library, you can even have furniture, and you can have this, and you can have that, and you can have lots of things. I don't mean to say they all became immediately materialistic, but it's a different way of life. And you need more monastic rules, because when you're traveling, it's automatically austere. I mean, try it. Try walking around the world. It's very austere. But when you have to live in one place, uh... It's not that austere, because you have a nice building, and there's plenty of food down in the kitchen. And so therefore, if you're a monk, and and you have to be celibate, and there's a lot of, you know, nice, beautiful ladies around who really love the way you explain the Dharma. So so the monks, (laughs) the monks, which happens. So the monks, romance happens even in monasteries. So the monks began to feel a need to have more, a more strict life. And you can, it's a very universal thing. 
see it in Christianity, you see it in all religions, that when you stay in one place and you, and you have a, an easier life, but you want to be a monk, they kind of have more austerity. And that produced the first great schism, actually. So by the time we get down to the Second Council, which took place uh, about a hundred years later, although not really. Apparently, a hundred years was just a way of saying after a pretty good amount of time in those days. And so if you get into more technical scholarship, it might have been a two-part council. It might have been the first one four years after the first, the next one six years later, but whatever, there was a second council. And they had a great schism because there was this Maha, the Maha Sanghas means the great community. And, and so, to put it in a nutshell, there was an argument over Vinaya, monastic rules, because apparently the uh, Teras or the Staviras, as they came to be called, the elders, they, want, they thought, we need more rules. It's like too soft. We're going soft. This isn't like it used to be. It's too easy to be a Buddhist monk now. We want more rules. And the other people, most people said, no, we, we don't want more rules. I mean, let's just leave it the way it is. This is all Buddha gave us. Buddha himself apparently said that you can kind of skip minor rules, like don't be fanatical about rules. It's not really about all these external disciplines. It's really about mind control and, and consciousness. So therefore, they had this big split, and suddenly there were two Buddhisms in the world, which is interesting. It took, well, less than... 100 years after Buddha, and there were two Buddhisms. So, human nature. So, I mean, yeah, there were still human beings in many ways. So that's the second schism. And there was also some argument, which some people attribute to the Great Schism, or say it was part of it, some people say it wasn't, but there was this guy named, or this monk named uh, Mahadev, which means great god. So Mahadev uh, thought that, come on, let's be more honest with ourselves. Let's, let's not pretend we're something we're not. Because he had this thing called arhats, you know, you know, the worthy ones, or the leaders, the saints in the community. And so Mahadev was asking embarrassing questions like, uh, you know, I think arhats can still be subject to temptation. Because I've seen some arhats and I felt that they were really kind of, you know, a little affected when, when in certain situations. So arhats can be subject to temptation. There's a residue of ignorance in them. They may have doubts. They may have doubts. They may, gain, they may gain knowledge by another person's help. They may fall away. In other words, Mahadev is kind of saying, let's demythologize this. We're really human beings still. Let's talk about real life for arhats. But apparently it didn't fly. And, and, but when you start to get a religious structure and authority, and the leaders say, hey, you, know, you don't need to talk about all this stuff. You're just breaking people's faith. They're not going to follow us. And then the whole thing's going to fall apart. So knock it off, Mahadev. So you get all these different conflicts, all these different tensions going on in the early Buddhist community. These are real people having real human problems. There's a third council. I want to go quickly because I want to get to karma. There, there's a third council uh, led by the great emperor Ashok. What's interesting is, for the first time, uh, now the second council, the then king Nanda, from the Nanda, I think Mahapadmananda, he kind of got involved, but in the first schism, but he didn't know too much about Buddhism, so he just kind of counted his. You know, he was a politician. Okay, count the votes. There's more people on this side than that side. Okay, maybe we'll go with this side. That's why they were called the Mahasangha, the Mahasanghikas, because there were just more of them. So they were the big group. Mahasangha, the big group. That's what it means. So then by the third council, Ashok, the great emperor Ashok, who becomes the first great patron of Buddhism, he just gets involved. He actually convenes it, and he's really part of it. So 
this is very reminiscent if you study the history of Christianity, the Jesus movement in the fourth century of this era, you see this very clearly. Roman emperors start to convene Christian councils and bishops start turning to emperors to resolve disputes. And this is a dramatic, if not drastic, development in the history of Christianity because you have emperors who are not even really baptized, in the case of Constantine. I mean, emperors who are not even baptized who are still doing such unchristian things as slaughtering their political enemies and doing all kinds of weird things, and yet bishops are turning to them and saying, you decide it, you're the emperor. And so emperors, unbaptized, still highly violent Roman emperors are making doctrinal decisions in the early church. Now, in the case of uh, Buddhism, uh, it's not exactly the same, but it's very similar because Ashok suddenly, Ashok is there and he's the emperor and he's supporting Buddhism. Suddenly, Buddhism comes to power. Not in the European sense where all of the religions are banned, but you've got this very powerful emperor. He's not just a king, he's an emperor. He rules most of the world that you know about. He's got fabulous wealth. He's preaching your message. He's sending his own relatives around the world, to his own daughter, other people in his family to preach Buddhism. He's having Buddhist preachers sent everywhere. He's, I mean, and, and if you look at Buddhist literature, it glorifies Ashok like anything. Ashok is like the guy in this, in this Buddhist history because he's, he's just making them into a world religion overnight. But he's also a politician. And so suddenly he's convening a council. and He's a major player at the council. He's not a monk. He's a politician. So these are some of the things that happen. I don't mean to say it immediately destroyed the whole religion, but it's a sea change. Things are not exactly the way they used to be. Suddenly we've got a lot of money. We've got a lot of beautiful buildings. We've got political support. It's not exactly the same as a bunch of guys wandering around and camping out with Buddha. And in this new sophisticated, you've got these communities, you've got universities coming up, people are thinking, you've got Buddhists who are really significant intellectuals who are not satisfied to not worry about speculation, just, you know, meditate. They really want to know. Especially because, again, now the Jains are there, and now that they're not just wandering around, they're not just competing with the Jains, they're competing with Hinduism now. So they're in the major leagues. They're act, they're not, it's not two little shramana movements trying to, you know, see, you know, who gets to sleep in the mango grove or, uh, you know, who converts the farmer and his wife. Now we're talking about a world religion. So they're coming ahead, they're in the major leagues now. They're competing with Hinduism, this whole Vedic thing. And on the Vedic side, they have a very sophisticated intellectual tradition. They've got Upanishads. They've got serious scholars. And so the Buddhists, you know, they don't want to look silly. They don't want to look stupid in front of the public. And so they've got to have their own stuff. And they start producing their stuff. And Buddhism starts to become sophisticated, starts to develop sophisticated intellectual traditions. Again, it's not just a bunch of guys camping out in the mango grove anymore. It's a, it's a different... Now, they're trying very hard to stay true to Buddha. They're trying very hard to keep their vital connection with the Buddha. But everything is changing. Not everything, that's unfair. A lot of things are changing. And to show you, when, it, when you finally get to Mahayana, there it is, uh, it's, whoa. It's a, I mean, it's, it's an amazing new thing that, frankly, 
the little the bhikshus and the mango girls probably never dreamed of. And so we have to talk about Mahayana. My God, clock is ticking. Now, one other thing I want to say here, uh, you'll be free actually, within a matter of minutes you'll be free. So just hang in there. Um, as Buddhism starts to become, as the way, the way one author puts it in our book, Buddha, the historical Buddha starts to recede. It's one thing when you know the Buddha, you're camping out with him. It's another thing when your guru lived with the Buddha and camped out with them. Or the guru of my guru. And there's all these stories. It's very human. It's very immediate. Yeah, I remember when Buddha stubbed his toe, but he was in such high consciousness. And, you know, and there's like hundreds and thousands of stories going around. But with every generation. I mean, think of it. Think of you're camping out at a mountain. And you're right there. You see the trees and the stones and the creek. You're really just right there on the mountain. And then, and then you know, you leave and you drive away. When you're a mile away from the mountain, you look back and, wow, I didn't realize it was that big. And you're two miles away, ten miles away. And pretty soon it's just, you know, it's just this thing in the school. So, historically, and again, there, there were no movies. There were, there, you couldn't just, you know, in those days, you couldn't just, you know, type in Buddha on YouTube. And, wow, that's his latest sermon. You, know, you couldn't do that. There's no films. There's no books. There's no magazines. No digital pictures. There's nothing. And so with every generation, Buddha becomes less and less a historical figure. And people start to worship him. People start to worship him. So that, uh, I noted a few things here, uh, if I can find them. Yeah, for example, when they excavate archaeologists, the early viharas, the earliest monasteries, in the earliest ones, there are no worship rooms. It's just, you know, the place they live, place they eat, meditate. But in the, then you get down into the um, second century, BCE, just a few hundred years after Buddha, there's a shrine room where they're doing worship. They're offering puja. This is starting to become like Hinduism because as Buddhism grows, the Hindus have their puja. Well, what do we worship? And people want to worship something. I mean, it, it's really human nature. Even the Jains, they worship their Tirtankaras. They really worship them because it's like a natural human thing. They want to devote themselves. They want to give their heart to something. They can't just give their head to something. They want to give their heart to something. They want to express their love. They want to feel they're in the presence of the sacred. And the Buddhists had that same human need as everybody else, and they started satisfying that need by worshiping. And so more and more, and then you start to get murtis, you know, it's a statues of the Buddha for worshiping. You start to see these popping up, statues, not just his parasols that'll, you know, umbrella for the sun, or not just a chakra, the wheel of dharma. You start to get statues, just like the Hindus have. There's statues, there's worship, and, um, and Buddha himself. Now, another thing about hierarchy, that when you have hierarchy at the top, it, it starts to filter down, like in Buddha's first sermon. Again, as it's remembered, as the first sermon in the Deer Park, near Benares, you can see there's already, again, this is the way they wrote it down centuries later, but the way they remember it, whatever happened, the way they remember it is, there's already this real steep hierarchy because Buddha had been sort of trying to meditate these other guys and Buddha, now nah, it doesn't work, he went on, and then he made it big. You know, they, now he's the Buddha, he's enlightened, so he comes back and he's saying five guys are there. And they think, hey, there's, there's old Siddhartha, remember? You know, we were in the trenches together meditating. And so when he approaches, they say, hey, friend Gautam. It's like, what else are they going to say? You know, Gautam was their friend. Now he's come back a few years later. Hey, Gautam. Hey, friend. 
But what does Buddha say to them? This is the first sermon. Buddha says, do not call the Tathagata by his name. I mean, this is pretty formal and pompous. I don't mean to say it's bad or evil, but it's not like, just relax, hey. So, the Tathagata, Tata means in that way or the right way, and Agata come. What does come in the proper way? So he says, do not call the Tathagata by his name, nor address him as friend. So I'm not your friend anymore. I'm not your friend anymore, and don't even call me by my name. Uh, nor address him as friend, for he is the Buddha, the Holy One. Uh, the Buddha, there's no God, but there's holiness. The Buddha looks with the kind heart equally on all living beings. So he's the Buddha. And they therefore call him father. To disrespect a father is wrong. To despise him is wicked. This is hierarchy. This is hierarchy. And I've observed this my whole life, actually, by... Uh, studying religious movements inside and outside. And that is that um, when the leader is, really takes a big position, I'm not saying Buddha really spoke like this, like, don't call me friend. I'm not saying he really spoke like this, but this is what the Buddhist community early on thinks he said. And it's like, whatever you know, the big person does, everybody follows. So therefore, when Buddha's gone and someone becomes a leader, it's like, don't call me friend. Because people tend to imitate. People tend to act like that. So when the leader sets this mood, or people think he set this mood, this tenor, then uh, it really filters down. And you start to get Buddhist leaders, arhats, that say, don't call me friend, and, and so on and so forth. And so you start to get a real hierarchy. For example, Buddha, they believe that Buddha said that when I die, bury me like a great king. Now, what Buddha really said, or, or, or you know, he wants, I'm sorry, cremated, treated like those, his remains be treated like those of a great king, enshrined in a stupa, used as a site for offerings for devotion. Whatever Buddha really said, this is what people think he said. And so again, when you have this huge hierarchy and this formality, it really trickles down. And people who get high positions in the institution think that, well, that's how you should treat a leader. So you get hierarchy at that level, the Theravadans start to say that you can't even get nirvana if you're married. Like, if you're married, man, you lose. You marry, you lose. Because it's only for months. And that's one of the Mahayana revolutions. They go, wait a second. I mean, this is... I thought we were against the caste system. Because that was the caste system. You had all these, you know, Brahmins, many of whom were celibate. And if you're not a Brahmin, you can't really read the Vedas. You don't have access to all these sacred things. Now, if you're not a, a celibate monk then forget it. You know, you can help monks. Even in the Jain things, they have this. You know, you can help the, you can help the uh, monks, but you can't really make it yourself because you are fatally married. So, so you have all these, this increasing worship. And then we get into the Mahayana period. A uh, few minutes left. Never enough time. So the Mahayana thing, they so, well... Perhaps I'll talk about karma in the philosophy section. There were some real problems with karma. People back then had real problems with karma. Mm -hmm. but the one thing uh, in this, we'll talk about this next week also, in this uh, Buddhism book, the guy said, well, it's just like the law of gravity. It's just like the law of gravity. It's just a natural thing. Well, wait a second. The law of gravity is not, in a moral sense, teleological. In other words, the Buddha's teaching about karma was 
that it works in such a way that leads you to higher moral states because immoral behavior is punished, moral behavior is rewarded. The law of gravity does not punish immorality and it does not reward morality. So there's something very different about karma, which is not at all like the, pardon the language, stupid law of gravity, which has no moral instincts whatsoever. So there's one problem that Buddhists noticed. Wait a second, or some Buddhists did. Why the teleology, why the purpose, why the moral purpose built into the laws of karma? What, where are the censors? In other words, if intention is so important for Buddhists, as it is, intention is so important for Buddhists, where are the censors in the universe? In other words, if you do something for the right reason, where is that picked up? How is it, where is that being sensed? Like, where is the machine that picks that up in the universe? How does the universe know why you did what you did? What in the universe knows it? What in the universe picks up the most subtle, tiny little nuances of your conscious intentions? So where are the sensors? And who carries the karma? It's like if you have karma, you know, if there's no person, who's carrying the karma? And why should I be punished for something that a previous stream of cognitive parts did? Because there's no person. So the last life, there was no person. It's just, it was just like this stream of flowing cognitive parts and process. Why should I suffer for what that stream did? And the real sense of Buddhism is that actually you are responsible. So if there's no person, who's responsible? Why do I get punished and rewarded? And finally, uh, yeah, am I really to blame? As the, we'll see next uh, Monday, the Pudgala, this group arose in Buddhism and said, wait a second, if you say there's no person, then we're not morally responsible. I'm not responsible for what I do because I'm not a person. Because people are responsible for what they do. So you get this whole... You, Oh, this whole Mahayana thing where suddenly, you know, there's a heaven. Basically, just in a nutshell, still have four minutes. Four and a half minutes. Please, be merciful, be Buddha-like. It's, um, the idea is that in Mah- I promise I'll end on time, that in the Mahayana, suddenly, from this little simple beginning, you're suffering because you're selfish, stop being selfish, here's how to stop being selfish, live a good life, here's an eight, you know, eight-step plan, not 12 steps, but eight-step plan. Suddenly from that, we've got an infinite Buddha who the, the body you saw, the body you saw on earth of Buddha, hey, that's just one kind, that's just one body. He's got a body in heaven. There are paradises. There are heavens. And you can go to paradise if you become a Buddhist. And not only that, there's even a body beyond that, which is Buddha's body identical to the absolute truth of what he taught. So this is starting to sound very much like old time religion, and it's starting to sound very much like Hinduism, and, the, and which is not a bad thing necessarily, it's just the way it is. So you've got, you've got a savior coming, this comparison to Christianity, Maitreya will come again, Buddha came, and he saved us, and, you know, a Buddha will come again, there'll be a second coming of Maitreya, and you can choose your paradise, not one, not two, but actually a grand assortment of paradises and heavens. It depends on Basically, you worship different Buddhas, and you can go to different heavens and have fabulous enjoyments and life, and eventually you should go to Nirvana after that, but whatever. The real point is you can go to paradise. And so what we're finding is this is starting to become really very much just like old-fashioned religion, which is not a bad thing. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I can't say it's a good thing because it's a public university. But that's what's happening. Again, 
a bunch of guys camping out with the Buddha to tell people, don't speculate. You're suffering because you're selfish. Stop being selfish. Just follow our eight-step program. Sign up. You know, just say, ready? Repeat after me. Buddham Sarangachami. Dharmam Sarangachami. Okay, you're in. I mean, that was very simple. And now suddenly we've got, I mean, there's this thing here in the book. It says the Buddhist universe. Where did the universe come from? There's actually a Buddhist universe now. So, uh, again, I think Buddhism is one of the best religions in the world to study, to see certain basic human religious needs. Which doesn't mean that human beings make them up. There's a really silly argument, this last thing I'll say, that some people give like, like you believe in God or you believe in this or that religion because you have a need for it. It's just your need. Hey, what? Guess what? I have a need for water. I don't create water. Water really exists. I don't imagine that there's water in the world because I'm thirsty. And if I'm hungry, it doesn't mean I imagine there's such a thing as food. If you think about your different needs for water or some other beverage, water or food or rest or friendship or love, the, we need these things because it's nature's way of telling us there is a real thing. There is a real thing out in the world that you need to go and get. So, the fact that you may feel a spiritual religious need, you may, depending on who you are, does not, I mean, to say that this proves you make it up, it seems to me is a terrible failed attempt at being logical. Because actually we can make a long list of needs which are natural, there are ways that nature has of alerting us to real things that we should go and get to complete ourselves. And so therefore the fact that Buddhists felt all these needs and eventually ended up with a Buddhism which satisfied all their spiritual and religious needs, that uh, doesn't mean they were necessarily making things up, but it does show something, I think, about human nature. Anyway, uh, have a great weekend, and I uh, hope I'll see you on Monday.